0: So like Chris said, we're starting this new sermon series looking at practical theology. And our hope with this was to really piggyback on some of the foundation that we've already laid this year. So we started off our year in our adult Sunday school talking about how to read and study the Bible. And then we decided to spend our summer talking about heresies, so how not to properly interpret the Bible and how people have gone wrong in that process in the past. And so then to finish out this year, we're going to be looking at some of the good theology as opposed to heresies and also how that applies to our everyday life. So we're going to start off with the super fun topic of sin. Yes. And we're kind of going through Recovery Sunday a week early. So next week is Recovery Sunday and looking at how sin and addiction kind of parallel each other. So I want to start with a little bit of interaction how would you guys describe an addict or addiction? Just shout out words. Disease, Disease. okay. <laughs> lack of impulse control, lack of supports, yeah. You guys have a lot more positive words than I was expecting. Yeah, depressed or in pain. So there's a lot of negative connotation kind of in society around addiction and addicts. And this week, I'm going to try very hard this morning not to use the phrase addict, but rather say someone who has an addiction. Um, How many of you have had your lives or the lives of someone that is close to you personally affected by addiction? Yeah, it's something that's pretty far-reaching. And when we think about addiction, typically we're thinking about some sort of substance. Ohio is one of the top five states for, um, in the opioid epidemic, looking at opioid addiction and misuse. And it's something that's incredibly pervasive, whether it's a substance or a behavior, it's something that affects the lives of pretty much everyone. So in In my journey, kind of in college and in pharmacy school, um, I'm an emergency department pharmacist, so I get to see the front lines of this in my day-to-day life on my job. And I knew that this was something I was going to have to encounter no matter what part of pharmacy I went into. And I really didn't have a good understanding of addiction outside of the kind of the typical negative connotations that we associate with it. So I really sought to take some classes and better understand it. And in the process of learning about addiction, saw some, some mirrors and some parallels with sin and what sin looked like in my own life and in the lives of people around me and how we kind of talked about the language of sin within the church. So what I want to do this morning is kind of walk through the biology of addiction and what addiction looks like and then also walk through how the Bible talks about sin and look at kind of how those two parallel each other. So to start that out, next slide. We're gonna look at the definition of addiction. So this comes from the psychology and psychiatry kind of diagnostic manual. It's the Diagnostic Standards Manual, fifth edition, which is the most updated. And I pulled this definition off drugabuse.gov. So addiction is a problematic pattern of use of an intoxicating substance leading to clinically significant impairment or distress as manifested by at least two of the following occurring within a 12-month period. So this is sort of the check marks um, that you have to go through to meet a diagnosis of addiction. The substance is often taken in larger amounts or over a longer period than was intended, Sin could fit pretty well into there, so some sort of behavior that you're doing in larger amounts or for uh, over a longer period than you intend. Two, there's a persistent desire or unsuccessful effort to cut down or control use of the substance. How many of you, this applies to how you have tried to conquer sin in your own life? Because it applies to me. A great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain the substance, use the substance, or recover from its effects. Craving or a strong desire or urge to use the substance or participate in the activity. Recurrent use of the substance resulting in a failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home. Continued use of the substance despite having persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems caused or exacerbated by the effects of its use. Important social, occupational, or recreational activities are given up or reduced because of the substance. Recurrent use of the substance in situations in which it is physically hazardous. Use of the substance is continued despite knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problem that is likely to have been caused or exacerbated by the substance. And then the, the last two don't apply quite as much to the sin analogy that we'll be using but are important to note when we're talking about addiction that it's marked by both tolerance and withdrawal. So tolerance is you need more and more of that substance to be able to feel any of the effect of it. And every time you use the substance, there's a diminished effect from it. And then also withdrawal. So there's, for each substance of abuse, there's a very characteristic withdrawal because your body becomes used to having it tolerance that we just talked about. So there's very characteristic substances for each, or symptoms for each of the substances of abuse that characterize the withdrawal from it. And another way that can, that withdrawal can manifest is that the substance or a closely related substance is taken to relieve or avoid withdrawal symptoms. So As we go on this morning, um, like I said before, we're going to talk a little bit about addiction and how addiction works, and then we're going to go into what the Bible has to say about sin and kind of a theology of sin before we finally look at some of the implications for our lives. So we're going to start out by looking at both the biology and the psychology of addiction, and most of this content I can't really take credit for. Most of it is from um, Dr. Amanda Berger at Cedarville University from her addictions class, So taking good notes, for those of you who are still in college, taking good notes in class can come in handy in the future. So when we're looking at the biology of addiction, so you've got the brain, right? And the brain is the control center of the entire body. Everything that I'm doing and everything that I'm saying this morning, even down to breathing, all starts in my brain. And neurons are kind of the pathways that the brain has laid out to be able to send signals to the rest of the body. And the brain needs a way to get these messages out along these neurons. And so the way that it does that is a mix of both chemical and electrical um, signals throughout the body. So those chemical signals are called neurotransmitters. And what they do is they ping on the neurons and cause the neurons to fire and send those messages throughout the body. So there's different types of neurotransmitters and signals for different types of actions that the brain wants the body to do. So there's one for muscles moving, there's one for your stomach churning up all of the different contents to be able to push it out into your gut. There's a different kind of neurotransmitter for pain, and then there's also a couple of different neurotransmitters for happy feelings or for pleasure. And one of the biggest players in that is dopamine. So that's kind of the neurotransmitter we're going to be talking about most when we talk about addiction. And the brain is pretty cool, because the brain doesn't just stay the same for your whole life. It has something that we call plasticity. And plasticity is the brain's ability to repair, replace, and retrain its circuits. So this plasticity is how you learn new things. And it's why the more you practice something, the better you get at it, and the better you're able to do it in the future, because your brain is constantly forming new connections and reinforcing the connections that are already there with its neurons and its neurotransmitters and the chemical and the electrical signals, so that you remember how to do it in the future. So with addiction, we actually see permanent damage to the brain. And a lot of it has to do with reducing that plasticity and the brain's ability to learn and unlearn and relearn new things. And we also see some changes to the reward pathways within the brain. So the way that reward pathways work is when you do something that is pleasurable, then you get a burst of dopamine that's released. So like eating a donut releases a lot of dopamine for me, right? And the brain gets that burst of dopamine and it remembers, oh, That's a pleasurable activity. So the next time I see a donut, then a little bit of dopamine is is released. I get a craving for that donut. And then when I actually eat the donut, even more dopamine is released. So it's the brain kind of getting you ready based on that trigger of seeing the donut for the dopamine that is to follow. So with addiction, when you're looking at specifically a substance of abuse, like opioids, heroin, so when you get that first, that first hit of heroin that someone ever takes, there's a huge, huge hit of dopamine in the brain. And the brain kind of, that's very pleasurable for it. So it's that first high that, that someone ever experiences. But then that's kind of overwhelming for the brain circuitry. And so the brain's like, okay, hold up. We can't have that huge flood of dopamine again. That was kind of overwhelming. So it starts to change the way that it receives that signal. And it starts to change the way that the brain naturally reduces dopamine. And this is why, as you chase that first high over and over and over again you're never gonna get that first high. That first high is as good as it's gonna get when it comes to that substance because of the way that the brain changes so it's not overloaded by that flood of dopamine again. And soon, that infrastructure has changed so much within the brain that the brain is, release, is releasing less of its own natural dopamine. So you become dependent upon that substance for even just the what you and I would have as a normal baseline amount of dopamine within our brain. So when it comes to someone who's addicted to this substance, they're not able to release enough of their own dopamine without the substance to even feel kind of baseline normal. And then you also get cravings that come. So just like with the donut, there's a little burst of dopamine that's released, um, so When you're engaging in activities or you see something and you have a trigger that typically is followed by substance use, so think like um, driving by your favorite bar if you happen to um, have alcoholism that releases a little bit of dopamine, and then your brain expects a lot more to come from it. But if you don't engage in that activity, or if you don't actually partake of that substance, then you end up kind of having a dopamine crash, where all the dopamine goes out. And so that's how that craving cycle kind of works. And addiction is changing the brain. So in this whole process, the brain is becoming physically damaged, affecting that plasticity that we talked about beforehand, but then also changing your ability to chemically be at baseline normal in your brain. So the brain of someone who's addicted to a substance or a particular behavior is actually less capable of unlearning that bad habit and then relearning new and good habits. So that's the biology of addiction. And then, if we look at the psychology of addiction, there's a couple of different symptoms of substance use disorder that the American Psychiatry Association goes through. So, one of them, like we talked about earlier, is impaired control. So, it's a craving or a strong urge to use the substance, and then also a desire or failed attempts to cut down or control substance use. And then, we can also see from that social problems. So Jeremy, I'm sure you see this a lot in your job, that substance use can cause a failure to complete major tasks at work, at school, or at home. Social work or leisure activities are given up or cut back because of substance use. And then this also dovetails into risky use. So the substance is used in risky settings, continued use despite known problems, and then the actual effects of the drug or the substance of abuse itself, like we talked about, that tolerance and that withdrawal. So you build up a tolerance to that substance, and you need more and more of it to get any impact at all, even though you're never quite going to get back up to that first high. And then also withdrawal when you stop using it. So because your brain has become so dependent on having that substance present in order to release any dopamine at all, then you withdraw from it as you take that substance away. So addiction then, is also defined by the American Society of Addiction Medicine as a primary, so that means it's, it is the disease, it's not caused by something else, it's not a symptom of something else, it's a primary, chronic, it doesn't go away, disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. So dysfunction in these circuits leads to a characteristic biological, psychological, social, and spiritual manifestations. And this is reflected in an individual pathologically pursuing reward and or relief by substance use and other behaviors. And they go on to say, Addiction is characterized by inability to consistently abstain, impairment with behavioral control, diminished recognition of significant problems with one's behaviors and interpersonal relationships, and a dysfunctional emotional response. Like other chronic diseases, addiction often involves cycles of relapse and remission. Without treatment or engagement in recovery activities, addiction is progressive and can result in disability or premature death. So as we start to think about sin and addiction and how those two walk hand in hand, if you take out some of the aspects of that definition, the inability to consistently abstain, impairment in behavioral control, ...craving, diminished recognition of significant problems with one's behaviors and interpersonal relationships... ...and a dysfunctional emotional response with cycles of relapse and remission... ...this isn't just describing substance abuse. This is describing every single one of us. This is what sin looks like in our lives without Jesus. So addiction and sin, once it's taken root, corrupts a person's brain, their mind, and their actions... The disease of addiction shoves who that person is aside and replaces it with an all-consuming desire for that substance or for that activity. So now we're going to transition into looking at a theology of sin. So anytime I'm starting to think about what the theology of something is, my first stop is Wayne Grudem and his Systematic Theology— And the way that Mr. Grudem describes sin in his systematic theology is that sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, in attitude, or nature. So this is, I mean, by by very nature, we are sinful. It's manifested in our acts and in our attitudes, but it corrupts even our very nature. And when we're looking at what the Bible has to say about sin... We know that we are sinful from our birth. And this is how that being sinful, even in our very nature, kind of comes in. So Psalm 51.5, um, all of the Bible citations are from the ESV, unless otherwise notated. Copyright. <laughs> Psalm, what? Crossway. Crossway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's my copyright statement for the sermon. Psalm 51, five. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And we also know not just are we sinful from birth, but sin has been around from the first humans, and the consequences of that sin are death. So just like addiction is a disease that ends up leading to premature death, sin, the consequences of our sin, is death. So Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. In Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So not only are we sinful in nature, and not only has sin been around in us from the time of our birth and from the first humans, and the consequences is our death, but we know that sin corrupts us, every part of us, and separates us from our good and holy God. So Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The Bible goes on to say in ephesians four seventeen through twenty four now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. So remember that the Jewish people kind of had this dichotomy between Gentiles and Jews since, they, since the Jewish people were originally the chosen people. And Gentiles didn't really get brought into that until after Christ came and his sacrifice was for all people. So um, here Paul is talking to a Jewish audience and they very much have this, this dichotomy in their mind that Gentiles are bad and Jews are good and holy. Uh, So now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Doesn't that kind of sound like the process of addiction and how addiction takes a hold of someone's brain? But that is not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And then finally, from Romans 3, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So sin has completely corrupted mankind outside of God. And so then out of that corruption, we have become enslaved. Just like the process of addiction, someone becomes enslaved to that substance to produce any kind of dopamine in their brain. So too, have we become enslaved to sin. So James 1.15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I love this verse because it describes kind of that process of how both sin and addiction really start with one choice. And then when that has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that becomes even more consuming and more consuming and more consuming. And that sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And then Jesus said in John eight thirty four, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And we see this also in Romans. So in Romans, Paul says in Romans 6, 16 through 23, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one who you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I speak in in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God— the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is one of the things that I love about the Bible, because even as it's describing sin and our state apart from God, it doesn't just leave us in that hopelessness, but instead it's bringing in how God redeems us and the hope that we can find in Christ. Because if we just focus on our sinful nature, it can become very depressing and very hopeless. And God, knowing that in his word, has made sure that whenever he's talking about our state apart from him, he also talks about the hope that is found in him. So like here, yes, we are slaves to sin in our own power, but through Christ, we can find that redemption and we beca- can become slaves to righteousness and the fruits that come from righteousness rather than the death that comes from sin. All right, so we've talked about how we're enslaved to sin, and just like addiction— When you try in your own power to change, there's likely to be relapse with sin. So if we look at the story of Israel throughout the entire Old Testament, Israel is God's chosen nation. And God comes to them and he develops this covenant with them and says, these are the things that I want you to do to live like my people and to be able to continue to pursue a relationship with me. And we see over and over and over and over again that Israel falls away from God and spirals further and further down and says, eh, we're not going to be followers of God anymore. We're going to follow our own thing. Even to the point that the Old Testament prophets describe them like prostitutes. It describes the nation of Israel as being a prostitute that continually and continually walks away from God and from the things of God. But God doesn't leave them there he comes back to them again and again. So each time they relapse into their sin and into their addiction, God goes back and he brings them out and he ransoms them out of that. So while when they try to change in their own power, relapse is likely, God never stops pursuing them out of that. And then we also see it in the New Testament. So Romans 7, 14 through 20. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For what I do not So under his own power, what Paul is saying here is under his own power, he has no ability to change his actions with apart from Christ and apart from the gift of Christ. Because every time he tries to change those actions under his own power, he ends up doing what he doesn't want because he is still, in his own nature, a slave to sin. So in order to come out from under the power of sin, just like under the power of addiction, it requires some pretty drastic action to change. And Jesus describes this in Matthew 5:29 through 30. So if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Not that I'm actually recommending that you tear your own eye out. What Jesus is saying here is metaphorically, this is how drastic of an action you have to take to root out sin in your own life. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. So just like when we talk about recovery from addiction, you have to completely eradicate that substance from your life. Because even just one use of it can lead to continued use and lead to a full relapse and and drag you back down that hole of addiction again. Similarly, we have to take some pretty drastic action in our own lives to be able to cut sin out and to be able to be free from sin. And then finally, we're powerless on our own to be able to root out sin, but God didn't leave us there. So Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Romans 5, 8, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What would we as a church look like if we recognized the pervasiveness and the power of sin? And so our church service functioned more like an AA meeting than like a typical church service. An AA meeting, if you've never been to one, it functions like a community. So the first thing that someone does when they get to AA is to say, Hi, my name is so-and-so, and and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, my name is Rebecca, and I'm a sinner. And then the next thing that happens is everybody else says, Hi, Rebecca. So it's a welcoming committee where people start with laying on the table what they're struggling with, and the community responds by welcoming them. And rather than trying to hide what they're struggling with, it's all brought out into the open, and everybody works as a community to support each other and to call each other out when they need to be called out so that people don't fall back into alcoholism again. So what if we recognize the fact that we're all recovering sinners? We're supportive of each other, We were honest with what we were struggling with and we functioned with accountability to call each other out when we saw each other going down the wrong path. I think that would look a lot more like the body of Christ than us trying to hide behind a mask every Sunday. We need to realize that on our own, we are powerless against sin. That God didn't leave us there. And that is the beauty of the story of the gospel. That on our own, We are completely powerless against the thing that separates us from God and brings us to eternal death, but God doesn't leave me there. So my name is Rebecca. I'm a sinner, but God didn't leave me there. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word and for your son. Jesus, I thank you so much for coming, and rather than leaving us in the state that we were in, and rather than leaving us in our sin, you came to redeem us and to rescue us out of that. And I praise you for that, and I thank you so much for that sacrifice. And I pray that as your body, we would come to recognize that fact better, and that we would function in a supportive way to help each other out, and that we would support each other as we, as we try to recover from the sinful people that we are. I pray all this in your name. Amen.
1: That was awesome. you got it. Did you get that on, Micah? So at City Church, we, uh, during the time of communion, we try to use this as a time to reflect, a time to consider the fact that Christ broke himself physically. He poured himself out for us on our behalf. And that it's important that if we are the body of Christ and if we are following him as the head, that we are doing the same. And so this week uh, was actually a very stressful week for me. Um, my entire schedule changed, uh, my wife had gotten a new job. And so that meant that instead of just, like, watching my son for five days and then going to work, it was every single day, extended periods. And if you don't know me, I'm a very obsessive person, so having a schedule and then that changing drives me nuts, and I don't sleep, get super anxious, all that stuff. But it's interesting that you talked about addiction, and what I love, too, is just um, we're pretty open here at City Church when it comes to, like, doctrine and your interpretation of sin and things like that, and a dogmatic stuff, we hold true to that, the Apostles' Creed, that's what sets us apart as being Christians, but whether or not you believe that sin is that you're born that way, that we're totally depraved, or you believe that more of an Eastern Orthodox, that um, everyone is born good but becomes sinful, the world is broken, it is broken, and uh, everything around us is corrupted, and that even if we choose to do a lesser good, it may be a perversion of what that is, the greatest good. Um, So whatever take you have on it, we still sin, right? And we know that, and we've talked about it before, that the Hebrew definition of sin is to miss the mark. And so it's used as like a bone and arrow shooting at a target, and then we miss the mark. And then we also know, as I've talked about before with Abraham, that when he walked with God, the Hebrew word for walk means to go back and forth. He didn't just like walk over here and get it all together. So one of the founding church fathers, one of the, well, if you want to call them the church fathers, but one of the founding people when it came to Torah, when it came to Jews and stuff like that, that they admired, still went back and forth with God. And we do the same. He still missed the mark. And so what I wanted us to talk about this week, or at least think about this week, and it really ties in well with your sermon, is that we tend to hate what we are ourselves. And what I mean by that is we tend to watch other people shoot their bow and arrow and say, hey, you missed it hey, you know, what if you did it this way? But instead of correcting them and helping them, maybe saying, what if you pull back this way? What if you adjust your tension? What if you aim like this? We look at it and we criticize it. And I really like what you said about it being like an AA meeting, having transparency, recognizing that we all are sinners, regardless of how we get there or not, if we're born that way or if we become that. We still are sinners and in need of a savior. And so instead of us looking at other people's marks and instead of us looking at how they pull their bow and things like that, why don't we either carry that burden with them and train them how to shoot it appropriately, or maybe recognize that we struggle with the same thing. You know, I I think we, as you go through school, or as you go through your workplace, we tend to work better by being transparent. We tend to want to be in communities with people that um, don't have it all together. It's far easier to relate with someone that's not perfect than it is to relate with somebody that is perfect. And so instead of putting this facade that we have it all together, chances are you relate with a lot more people if you're like, hey, this is where I struggle. And in the same sense, too, um, be open to what you don't struggle with. For me, primarily, being a white man, I don't know what it's like to be a woman that's not allowed to preach in a church. Chances are, too, like someone that looked like me, that had the tattoos, that had the hair and stuff like that, and the gauges, if I was a woman, may not be hired to be an associate pastor. I think of people like the ice raids and stuff like that that happened. Are we taking care of these orphans because even though they're not our orphans, even though they're not of our race, are we still seeing them as God's chosen people? Are we still seeing them as somebody that God loves and that he, you know, has mercy on and that they're, that grace that is given to us also goes to them too? You know, I think of whether you take the stance on Black Lives Matters or not and stuff like that, the fact is, are you okay with life being taken Are you okay with things that, are you open to the idea that just because you don't struggle with it doesn't mean it's not a struggle we're standing up for? And then when you consider that our Christ who was perfect, this is what he did for us, that grace. That's what grace is, is a gift that we don't deserve. You know, so do we really consider that? If we're supposed to be modeling ourselves like Christ, then it's taking a step back and saying, just because I don't struggle with it doesn't mean that I shouldn't be standing up for it. It doesn't mean that I shouldn't be defending those where social injustice is happening or standing up for the good that's out there and commending the people that are encouraging and doing the work uh, in that field. And so it's been a while, Jeremy, since I dropped the Diedrich Bonhoeffer. So, but one of my favorite quotes, and I've said it time and time again, is that look at people less in the light of what they don't or do, or let me rephrase that because I messed it up. Look at people less in, the, less in the light of what they do and don't do and more in the light of where they suffer. It's important that we aren't doing this legalism when it comes to our faith, because our faith isn't based off the law. Our faith isn't based off what we do or don't do. It's based off a grace. It's based on the fact that Christ saw that we suffered, and so what did he do? He suffered on our behalf. And it's through that suffering that we find Christ. It's through that suffering that we can have growth. As we've talked about as a runner, you stretch out before you start running. You don't just go into a marathon. And so allow that suffering to stretch you, to mold you, And then when you see that in other people, don't condemn them and say like, oh, too bad for you. Come alongside them, train them, guide them, or more importantly, maybe just be honest with them, saying, hey, I don't know how to get better, but this is where I've been. Carry that burden collectively. So as you participate in communion, uh, I ask that you would consider that. How are you being broken for the world around you? How are you being poured out for those around you? How are you being transparent? And let me tell you, there's a beauty to letting it go. There's a beauty to letting go of trying to be perfect and of allowing people to see you for the good things in you but also the bad things in you um, because there's, there's the beauty. That testifies to Christ. Christ is their Savior, not you, not me, not Chris, not Becca. It's pointing them to Jesus and not to us. And so we offer an open communion policy here at City Church and what that means is that as long as you believe the gospel message message of what whom Christ is, the fact that he lived a life that was perfect, that he was God, that he is fully man and fully God and always has been, but still entered into the world as a man, and that he died on your behalf. He gave himself up willingly on his own for us, and that he resurrected and that he will return again. If you believe that, you're welcome to participate in communion, whether you're Catholic, uh, Eastern Orthodox, whatever denomination you may be. We offer that communion policy or that open communion policy here. So when you're ready, um, we also believe that Jesus presents himself to us, but it still requires action. So we ask that you would come up and participate in the elements whenever you're ready. All right. Thank you.